following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. The topic, actually, I gave the topic a while back during the Kavanaugh hearings, um, but it's not, the truth is, and that's old news already, a lot of it's fake news, old news, every, whatever you want to call it. But um, the, the questions involved are really not only relevant to Kavanaugh, it's, it's relevant to really many political appointments, but it's also, people don't realize, very relevant to um, appointments of Rabbanim also, or any other, um, I guess, uh, position of stature in the community. So we need to know how we deal with um, when you're interviewing, whether it be for a rabbi, for a teacher, or whatever else it is in the community, um, how you deal with, first of all, people who come forth with allegations about the prior life of this candidate, um, things that are rumors or allegations, whatever it is, in Unando, things that you read about, you heard about. Um, so it's very relevant to know how to deal with that from a halachic perspective. Um, you know, so again, this has come up. It's unfortunately, as we know, rabbis are humans too, believe it or not. People don't always believe that. But, uh, and, and there have been many stories, unfortunately, um, thank God not in our community, but in other communities across, across the United States, in England, in Eretz Israel, where um, there have been issues that have come up about either sitting rabbis or rabbis that are up for a position. Um, and the question is, um, how does community or the interviewers, uh, VAD, whoever, whatever, whoever is doing the process to appoint or to hire the rabbi, the board, whatever it is, depending on which city, which institution, so how do they deal with that? So again, well, it's in the context of Kavanaugh, but um, because of many of these issues came up with Kavanaugh, but as we know, it's very relevant for a lot of different things. So, um, so the first thing to start off is the basics, which is, as we know, normally, the evidentiary standards in Torah law and halacha are very, very high. Um, you need the Torah to enforce a pasuk. It's a pasuk in Dvarim, in two places actually. It says, Apishnaim Edim Yakum Davar. You need to have two witnesses are required to establish any fact um, in a Jewish court of law. Okay? So, again, we're, we're discussing from a Jewish perspective. Kavanaugh obviously is a whole different story. We'll, we'll apply some of the principles. But that's, that's, a, that's not a Jewish court of law, obviously, but we'll still try to apply some of the same principles. So as far as evidentiary standards, it's very clear. The Torah makes it very clear. Very high standards. You need Apishnaim Edom. You need, um, besides two Edom, anything less than two witnesses are never accepted in a Jewish court of law. Um, you also need, actually, by the way, I was on jury duty this week on Monday. And, and one of the ways, I, I thank God they didn't take me anyway. I wore my hand jacket and then, you know, shuckling, so that was the way out. Um, but but uh, one of the ways, if they would have chosen me for the jury, I would have, uh, I was planning on saying, is bringing up this this aspect of that a man of religion, I feel, you know, the Torah's evidentiary standards are very high. So it is something they could use uh, if you ever want to get on jury duty. But, as we'll see, it's not necessarily correct. So, so, so the, the bottom line is, again, evidentiary standards are very high. We also have the concept of hasra. Um, the halacha says that the only time you can prosecute someone is when they were pre-warned prior to doing the act um, that this, uh, this specific violation that they're going to do is prohibited according to the Torah and stating what the, what the punishment is, what the onus is for that specific avera, for that violation. 
So it's not so, and without Asra, you could never prosecute someone either. Okay, someone could never be prosecuted without Asra. Um, so without so prior so warning. So you can see them do something. Right, so they could be two aid. It's as if it never happened. Right, exactly. It, yes. Meaning, not as if it never happened. We can't prosecute you. Meaning, it's, again, in a, in a Jewish court of law, in order for the for us to accept the Adem, the Adem themselves, by the way, had to have priorly warned um, the, the perpetrator So if two people see crime. someone stealing a car, but didn't warn him beforehand, they can't afterwards say, right. he stole Except, the, the only exception, by the way, to that is the Talmud Chacham, and the Allah says, Rabbi Paskin, that the Talmud Chacham, since it's understood that he knows before, so therefore he doesn't have to be pre-warned. It also doesn't have schools, he always has Dalek Hafs close, but, uh, but I'm saying that's when there's a rumor. But if there's two Adam, there's no Dalek Hafs. You see what he's doing. Yeah. Declare so act. Is a code of <coughs> law sufficient for warning? No, not in Jewish law. Except if you're a rabbi, Talmud uh, Chacham, someone who we know is a scholar who knows Dalek So if it's clear that you know Dalek before, then we can, then you don't need to be pre-warned. But any other, um, the, any other person, the assumption is that they don't necessarily know the law before that this is a clear violation and what the consequences of that violation are and therefore um, without that we can't prosecute okay generally in Allah so it sounds that's very strict and as we know specifically in capital crime the uh, Gemara and I think the Mishnah in Makkah um, and Sanhedrin mentioned it also which is that even though there are many laws in the Torah that are capital crimes in practice was rarely rarely instituted capital punishment uh, um, according to one opinion, it's once in seven years. According to one, another opinion, it's once in 70 years. It says that if a Bezdin kills someone once in 70 years, I believe it's a Rekiva's opinion, they're called a Bezdin Shalkatlanus, a murderous Bezdin. So the state of Texas clearly uh, would be considered a murderous, uh, murderous according to, to that definition. Um, so, but but that is, so that's very clear, and, and as we quote here, the Shulchan Aruch also says, by the way, circumstantial evidence, as they say, number two, is also never accepted. Um, there's never as um, Gabi. Circumstantial evidence is never accepted in the Jewish court of law either. So it means, uh, you know, literally the the famous movie scene where you see a guy, uh, you know, uh, 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 panel truck, and you see someone chasing someone with a gun, and the panel truck comes, drives by, and then, you know, when you see the guy ready to shoot, screaming, I'm going to kill you, and then, you, you know, afterwards the, the panel truck goes in front, you can't see, the guy's dead on the floor, you know, he's holding a smoking gun, according to Allah, that would not be accepted, again, that's circumstantial evidence. Didn't actually see the act in when it happened, as it was perpetrated. Okay, so there's no smoking gun, as Donald Trump would say, and uh, there's no, uh, can't accept it, yes. So, I mean, a witness can't testify to it, or a based in can't? You can testify to it, but he didn't see the act of murder, so therefore it's irrelevant. That's circumstantial evidence. It's only circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is never accepted in a Jewish court of law. So based for, on, can't for based on this, based on circumstantial evidence. Exactly. So the whole OJ thing, OJ would be off the hook. Most, many, many cases would be off the hook. So, so it's a very high standard of evidence, but um, and that's what the Shulchan Aruch says here in number two. Um, it says, as one witness cannot give testimony except for monetary questions. That, by the way, for tort law, of course, there's a different standard, but we're talking about for felonies for criminal law, such as Kavanaugh's case, um, where he's accusing him of a criminal act. Um, so in that case, um, none of the evidence would be considered halachic evidence that was brought. Um, just uh, someone, one person coming along and saying something means nothing, as we're going to see. Um, so it says, monetary questions where they can obligate the plaintiff to swear. So the only thing in eight echa that means that one witness, a single witness can do in Jewish court of law is obligate 
um, is make is make the plaintiff swear. That's something that the Willis swear, take an oath that this did or did not happen. That's the most we can do. Um, that's the most an Echad will do, one witness. Um, or if there's a question of forbidden deed and there's a possibility of stopping the action from taking place. So let's say there's someone who's a danger to society, we have to get them off the street. That's a different story. However, if it's already occurred, it's forbidden to give testimony. We're only discussing a past action, like in the Kavanaugh case, so then Echad is, is really worthless. Echad meaning one witness, one single witness, really their evidence is not accepted um, at all. Okay, so that is a very scary statement, very scary, very, like we're saying, a very high um, level of, of, a very high standard of evidence. And not only that, there's even the scary, the Gemara Psachim discusses here, number three, that because we don't accept it as evidence, therefore, if you're a person who has testimony about an act that occurred, whatever the act may be, and you come to Bezdin, and you, or you go to the papers, and you release that information, um, which is not going to be accepted as evidence anyway, so, so then, then it's wrong, because now, what's the point of it? You can't prosecute the person anyway, so what's the point of releasing this information? This is what the Gemara seems to imply in Psachim. So you see on the bottom, number three, on, on, side, on the left side, it says, um, the Holy One, blessed be He, loves three people. One who does not get angry, one who does not get drunk, get back to that, relevant to Kavanaugh, one who is forgiving, okay? Holy one, blessed be he, hates three people. It says the Kaddish Baruch hates three people. One who says one statement with his mouth and means another in his heart, right? One who knows testimony about another person and does not testify on his behalf. That's also, by the way, it's a mitzvah deraisa. If you do have relevant testimony um, and, and you're privy to information, that can be used against someone as, as a valid testimony. So then you're mechuyiv to go to court. That's a mitzvah. That's a mitzvah that you have to go testify. Um, by the way, it's very relevant, not off the topic, but relevant for attorneys and for physicians where they, they have issues of confidentiality, um, where according to the law, they might not be able to reveal their client's confidentiality or their patient's confidentiality. According to halacha, they have an obligation to testify. Um, so it's a side topic, but there are cases like that, and there's uh, the chuvis in the, today's post can already discuss what happens as an attorney where you're in a situation like that, a from attorney, where you have to reveal information, a pialacha, to a bezdin, but you're going to lose your license if you do, because legally you can't. So there's a discussion about that. Um, according to this interesting chuva uh, from Sicily Ezer about a doctor, he says that even though a doctor takes a Hippocratic oath, where he can't reveal information about his patient, and today there's HIPAA laws, but he says that if he has to, um, if he has to testify in court, in a case where Allah will require him, we'll say with a person who's a danger to society, and the doctor knows uh, this patient, let's say, has an infectious disease that he can infect his partner or someone else. Um, so the Tzitzeliezer says he's mechiv to go, even though he took a Hippocratic oath, that he can't reveal information about the patient. Why? Because he says, because you you have a, there's a famous halacha which says that you, every Jew was at Har Sinai, took an oath to uphold every mitzvah in the Torah. Everyone was at Har Sinai, we were all there, and we all took an oath to uphold all 613 mitzvahs. Therefore, when I take a subsequent oath, let's say in this case, the Hippocratic oath, or I don't know if a lawyer takes an oath, I hope they don't. Um, uh, you do? We get to the bar, each bar, because that makes it more meaning, So that oath, if it goes against halacha, is... is is, so to speak, is not a valid oath. Not the whole oath, but even a part of it. So he discusses there, therefore, you still, uh, so your second oath you're taking, he's going on a physician, your Hippocratic oath, 
would, if, it's, if it goes against that mitzvah of testifying in front of Bezik, then the oath is invalid, relevant to that, and therefore you still have, have to go and violate your hypocritical oath because it wasn't a real oath. So are, That's are a there yeah. well-known instances of, of that occurring where a, a doctor uh, or a lawyer in court chose to uphold halfa instead of law? Um, I, I, clearly, in this case, there, there are cases um, that are relevant. I can't tell you. I, I was never involved in such a case. Um, but I'm saying there are responses written about it, so clearly it came, it was a specific question that occurred. So this was in Israel, I don't know about it in the States, but so, uh, things have occurred, yeah. There's an obligation to testify, do you mean only if you're asked by Bezling? No, it means if you, if you know information that Bezling could, could use, so it's a, literally, I believe it's a mitzvah deraisa, according to Moser Shainim, to go and testify in Bezdin. Um, if, again, if, if I'm one person in Oh, okay, again, so in the case where it's our testimony. Uh, do I need to find someone else first? Have two go no, together? No, so, so I'm saying in a case where it's relevant. Let's say it, it could, you can make the mechaev a shvua. We're saying you can, oh, okay. so you can be mechaev the point of a shvua, so then that would be enough of a reason. Okay, okay so... So, I mean, ask a child, don't, 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 don't pace it up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Speak to your local uh, LOR, as they say. Um, okay, so now, so the, so the Gemara goes on to say, the third person who, uh, who Kaddish Baruch Hu hates is, he says, one who observes a licentious matter performed by another person and testify, testifies against him alone. That means the Gemara is saying, if you saw something, a virus or happened. I mean, something that shouldn't have happened, in this case, even a sexual matter, such as in the Kavanaugh case, but your testimony won't be accepted in a Jewish court of law. So there's no point of, of saying it publicly because now you're just basically, you know, you're not, you're not going to afford the person a fair trial because he can't go again. You're, you're saying something. It's his word against you. It's he said, she said. Okay, and now because of your testimony, this guy's whole life is ruined, so to speak. I mean, soon this is what the Mepharshim explained. That, that's shat. So therefore, better don't say it. If you have testimony that's not going to be accepted in the court of law, then you can't go public with it. Because if you do, um, you're, you're basically causing the guy harm, which you have no right to do. He needs, he's entitled to a, to a, to a, um, a fair trial, whatever the case is. Okay? So, so this, again, this would all seem to be very, very strict here and problematic um, and very extreme in the sense of the standard of evidence. And, and seeming just if you apply this to Kavanaugh, it would seem very, very extreme in the sense of she even had no right, to, which by the way, initially, as we know, she didn't go public. She initially just spoke, sent a message to her senator, Diane Feinstein, who then went public. She didn't want to go public, so she really did the right thing. Initially, uh, whatever, Kathleen Ford, whatever her name was, what was her name? I don't remember. Uh, something Ford. Catherine, Kathleen. Lazy Ford. Catherine Blasey Ford, or Kathleen, I don't know, Catherine, whatever. It's old news already. Anyways, the point is she did the right thing in the sense of she went privately, which that you're allowed to do. She didn't go public with her information. She didn't go to, an, to a paper. She originally just went and revealed the information privately to her senator, which technically was the right thing to do. Now, the senator is the one that messed up and went public with the information. What we're saying here is, according to this, she has no right. She maybe had no right to do that. Now... Um, but there's a big but here, as we're going to see. So if you look, to, if you go to the next page, top of page four. So this is all, again, a pialacha. Um, it's a fascinating thing here. We have all this, again, extremely high standard of evidence. But when it comes to, uh, you're jumping out here on the, on the right side. 
Number four on the right, top of the page. So, so, the, so there's a fascinating Grusha Saran and, uh, and uh, also Chuvis Arajma, which I didn't put here. Both more or less say this very similar things, which is they basically throw out all these, uh, this high evidentiary standard. The Ran goes on to say, um, I have the original Ran here, talks about this concept and he says, I can find it quickly. Yeah, the Rosh Saran says very clearly, first there's a Chuvah Sarajba and Rosh Saran both discussing cases where people came forth with certain allegations, whatever the case was. And, um, and the, the Rajbah and the Ram both similarly say the same thing. I'm not going to read it inside, but both similarly say that, um, that this is all very nice, this is halacha. But when you're dealing with a society, we understand that there's no way you, you can have a society if you have this high evidentiary standard, that basically you can't prosecute anyone. No one would ever be able to be punished. And therefore, he says, it's based on, he says, um, uh, the Lashon Raj, but I'll read it to you. It says, He said, therefore, every generation, the judicial system or the people of that generation, the leaders, have to see what's fit in order to keep people in order. Um, and, uh, and he quotes, quotes if they see the proper time, there's a I mean, at this point in society, whatever was going on at the time, they feel there's a need to uh, to punish or to knas. How do you say knas? To penalize or penalty. Penalty gives gives someone a monetary penalty, mamon or guf, or even a, a punishment. For their body, um, for the sake of the country, they did the proper thing. And the Ran, the Ran says the same thing. The Ran says, if we just keep the Torah's evidentiary standards, the world will be destroyed. They couldn't be society; couldn't exist. It's too high a standard. And the Torah understood that. So he says, he talks about the Ran talks about it's a long drush, a drush for Yudalf, and drushes Iran, and the Ran's a Rishon, early authority. He talks about that there's uh, that there's two things: there's mishpat and there's din. The Torah is talking about din. There, again, there has to be a certain sense of justice in society, especially he talks about in Gaulus, and therefore we, it's given over to each and each Bezdin to use their seichel in how to pass, to use um, and, and, uh, and apply things, even if they don't have this same evidentiary standard that the Torah sets down. So it's a massive chiddush. Um, this is discussed extensively, if you're, very, if you're interested in the topic, um, Rav Herzog, who is the uh, first chief rabbi, the second chief rabbi of Israel, I don't know my history so well. Um, he was, it was majorly discussed by many of the postcom at the time before the state of Israel was established in how to work the state of Israel. They were the religious Zionists, and you know, viewing the state of Israel as they wanted it to be a halachic state. Didn't happen necessarily, but they tried. And and Herzog has a actually a three-volume sefer on mishpat on judicial systems and how it would work in the time of Mashiach, etc. And he uses this drasha Saran and the Rajma extensively to say that. Basically, we have to do whatever we have to do. No, it's meaning that we're not limited to the to the psukim and the Torah that discuss evidentiary standards when you're dealing with din. So therefore, um, so and therefore, he discusses it in the context of uh, of the state of Israel and how to apply it there. Um, so it's I don't have the copy of the sefer, but it's available on HebrewBooks.org if you're interested in seeing more on the topic. But the, the bottom line is, so really, what we see here is from this drasha Saran and from the Rajbah, the Jews of Rajbah, which again were very early authorities, 
um, the Rad was 200 years, I believe, before the Ram, um, discussing this, that there's a lot of leeway and, and wiggle room when it comes to when we feel like there's something in society that needs to be fixed, we have a right to accepting them. And, and this is used even today in Bati Dinam across the world, especially when it comes to sexual matters, because in many of those cases you're going to have children testifying before the Bezdin coming, or, the, or when you're dealing with pedophilia, or you know, women, in many cases it's women coming to testify before the Bezdin about things that happen. They're accusing this, whatever, whoever the person is they're accusing of. So women, as we know in Allah, are also not technically considered kasher They're not valid mm-hmm. witnesses, but many times the Bezdin will accept the testimony of the woman. Um, but again, they, they, what they say is, the wiggle room is, they say it's not being accepted as edus per se, but as, as um, um, I forgot the Lashon they use, but they, you know, they wiggle out of it by listening to her and they accept, they hear the story. Because again, we can't have a society where you're saying only men are going to be accepted, only men's testimony will be accepted. Because it's just not going to work. Especially in case of sexual matters where they're alone in the room together. So you have to hear the story of the woman and you can accept it again, not as edus, but as as at least, as we're going to talk about, uh, you want to be chayshish for it. So, so there's different, as we see the, in the Rishayim already, and again, it's applied today in many cases, where there's wiggle room in how to accept testimony. So that's as far as the evidentiary standard is concerned. Um, as far as just to get into the next question really is, so now when you have allegations and rumor, where you don't have evidence, even in a non-Jewish court of law, what happened, let's say, in the Kavanaugh case, it's clearly not considered evidence. Um, that was the original claim. There's no evidence here. But again, but you have someone who's testifying in, in risking her reputation, whatever you want to say, whichever side, I'm not, not taking sides in that argument, but there's someone who seems credible and, uh, and, and is testifying and making these allegations. So how do we deal with them in the sense of, clearly, they're, again, they wouldn't be considered evidence in that case. There's no evidence there. But uh, do we have to, can we accept it? It's a Lashon Haram. As we said before, the, ta- the Gemara B'Sachim seems to imply that and I didn't even finish the Gemara, by the way. The Gemara goes on to say that we, uh, the Gemara goes on to discuss that the person who came forth and testified, whose evidence wasn't accepted, is they wanted to give him makas for coming to testify. That's how strict the Gemara would seem to apply. Again, so the question is how does it apply today? Of course, I don't think we would apply it in the sense. We, we need to hear, especially when people come and have allegations against whoever it may be, rabbi, teacher, um, community, whatever community leader we're discussing, um, I think we need to give them a voice. They have to be heard. Um, so exactly how that fits with the Gemara, I still I don't have a clear answer. But most Bati Dinim will. We want. We don't want to discourage people from testifying, um, especially again when you're dealing with an interview process where you're appointing someone as a leader of the community. You have to be very careful, and we'll talk about that. Who that person is. So so you have to be. You have to give people a voice who have who want to come and make disclosures. How we accept it and how we decide is that a reason not to hire the person or not to appoint the person in the position? That's a different question. So that's what we're going to discuss soon. So, so, um, but I, I, how this Gemara exactly fits? I'm not sure. I don't have a good answer. I asked a few people. No one gave me a satisfactory answer. At least not to my satisfaction. So, so if you look at number five, number five is, is just quoting Erech um, Shulchan, which this is talking about again where there's a question if this woman was married, if she had an affair, different things about a specific woman. And he says you have to discount rumors. When there's a rumor going out in the city, you only pay heed to it if the rumor has become established in a Jewish court to proper witnesses who testified that they saw the preparations for the wedding. Meaning someone, what happens is, and this happens more than you think, 
um, especially uh, you know in out of town cities where pe- a woman's getting married by the rabbi, someone comes forth and says, by the way, she was married before, and uh, she never got a get. She wasn't religious. Is this about true or whatever the case was, or they're they're still not religious, and now the question is becomes, what does the rabbi do? Does he accept the someone comes just shows up and says, by the way, she was married before. Now he can't marry the person. Or someone says, you know, and this, there's chuvas about this also, or, and I've had cases like this myself, where someone says, you know, the mother's questionably Jewish. You know, we don't know what, to, if she was converted, she wasn't converted, she was adopted when she was a kid, so what do you do in those cases? Do we have to stop, do we have to, me as a rabbi, not marry the person because someone, one person came forth and started a room and said something, 50 years ago, this mother, well, she was adopted. How does that work? Okay. Lerachashukam says very clearly, unless the rumors are established in the Bezdin, rumors mean nothing. Um, we, we can't just go because anyone comes along and starts a rumor about someone. We don't know their history. Maybe they had a bad uh, date with them 50 years ago. They, you know, the person dumped them, rejected them, whatever the case. There's a lot of reasons why people have hold grudges even 50 years later or 30 years later in the case of Kavanaugh. And we don't know. And therefore, you can't just accept a rumor. Um, as is. So that's the Shulchan says very clearly. He says it has to be, the rumor has to be substantiated through uh, a Bezdin, through proper witnesses who testify they saw the preparations for the wedding. So if two people, if two witnesses come forth and says, yes, we got an invitation to the wedding 50 years ago um, for this woman, um, and we, uh, we saw her preparing for the wedding, she brought a gown or whatever it is. So then that's something else. And they say they come in front of Bezdin. So that's a different story. Um, then we assume that she's indeed a married woman. The two pieces of information together can establish halachic reality. So he's saying, without that, there's no halachic reality. Rumors alone, and by the way, there are cases. There was a tshuva I read of in England where someone was getting married, a, a boy who, someone came along to the Rav, to the Bezm in that city in England, and said that this person um, was adopted after the Holocaust, I believe, and they, their mother told them, that's what they said, that this person was adopted. And, uh, and there was no Geras, there was no conversion for this kid, he's really not Jewish. This kid went to Yeshiva, he was a you know, kid who went through the system and everything, and they claimed, and the parents weren't alive, and the mother's dead for years, Holocaust survivors. So the, they sent the question, I believe, to Rabbi Yashav, and he said, you know, that he could marry the person. There's nothing wrong, you don't have to, you don't have to assume anything based on, it's because one person came along and said that this person was adopted 50 years ago. No one else knows anything about it. So there's no reason to assume, and based on the rumor, it's 100%. You don't have to tell the kala, even, um, and you can marry the person. So rumors are not, if they're not halachically established, the rumor alone is worthless in halach. Now, as far as Hilchas Lashonara is concerned, that's always an issue. So the Chafetz Chaim discusses extensively, and this is a very famous halacha, Klal Dalet, that, that um, whenever there's a rumor, you're not allowed to believe it as truth. But that doesn't mean I can't be choshish for it. Meaning, so if someone, I'm going into business with someone, with a, you know, with a partner, and then someone comes along and tells me that this guy, um, you know, has ripped his three, last three partners blind, okay, so someone shows up and sends me an anonymous email, whatever it is. So I can't, I can't accept it as truth. That would be lashnar. No way, this is nothing valid about it. It's just a rumor. This guy's telling me there's nothing substantiated about it. But I'm allowed to be choshish for it, says the Chavetz Chaim. That means I'm allowed to be concerned enough that I can check it out, that I can start checking and Google, uh, go to whatever it's called, mylife.com, or whatever, they have all these websites today. You can find out everything about how many times your mother changed your diaper on any given day in your past life. So today you can subscribe to these websites and you could 
check it out. So you're allowed to do that. I Meaning you have a right to do that. If someone tells you something based on a rumor, you can um, go ahead and, and, and do the research, the proper research. And then, after the proper research, make a decision, is this a substantiated rumor or not? But I can't believe it as truth. Okay, so that's basically, that's the halacha Chaim says, that based on rumors, one has a right to suspect, but not accept it as truth, but should investigate. So I do have a right to investigate. As a matter of fact, you should investigate. You'd be stupid not to. So the same thing with Shaduchim, by the way, is very relevant in Shaduchim. This happens all the time, of course, that people will, you know, someone's dating someone, or they're checking someone out, and they hear something. You know, this guy, uh, whatever it is, he had a past girlfriend, whatever the case is, that they're concerned about in the Shaduchim, or, you know, he's on psychotic medicine, whatever, whatever it may be, so again, you can't accept it as truth, but you have every right to go and do research now, and now go and ask a lot more questions based on the rumor that you heard, or based on the, you know, the allegation or the innuendo that you heard. But you can't accept it as truth. Um, so if you don't, if you do your research and you find something, I mean, when it comes to Shaduchim, you have a right, even on the Suffolk, maybe to say no. That person, that's your prerogative, you know, when it comes to a, a marriage. But as far as... Um, accepting it as truth, you still can't accept it as truth, and you can't pass on the information to anyone else unless you substantiate it as truth. So that's as far as the rumors are concerned. Now, what's fascinating is, I don't know if we have enough time to go through all of it, but there's, um, there's, uh, the Shulchan Aruch, it's a little known simon, Shulchan Aruch, I think it's better, probably it's a little known, it's in Arachayim, but no one really learns this. It's in Elchaz Brachas, um, simon Nun Gimel in Arachayim, which goes, the Shulchan Aruch discusses what are the proper um, attributes for a chazan, for a shliach tzibur. How we think of a shliach tzibur is this the guy, you know, some guy who no one else wants to die and go out there. We're talking about where, where obviously shliach tzibur is considered, let's say, let's think about it as Fernila, Yavim Naraim, someone who you want, someone representing you who is the right person, just because has a good voice, but as the guy, and, and I've, we've had this here in town, I'm not going to mention names, but there have been stories in town where, where we, um, I'm not going to discuss with Shul in the past, but this has happened many years ago where we found out the Chazin was uh, living with, the Chazin for Yom Naraim was living with a Shiksa. Okay, so that was a problem. Um, we brought up with the board of the Shul, and, and next year obviously we didn't use him, but we obviously we didn't make it public why we're not using him again, but th- these things happen. So in that sense, the person representing you, especially on Yom Naraim, but the Shulchan here is discussing it in your regular everyday davening, you don't want Shleich Tzibur, you want him to be the proper person. So let's say someone uh, says a rumor about him, or he's like, how does it work? When can you remove a, a shliach tzibur, a chazin, from his position, and when do you not appoint him to the position? So the Shofan Aruch deals with it extensively. I'll just read you. It starts off here. Um, it says, uh, so I, I, again, do we view, uh, first of all, surely a rabbi would surely be, um, I, would, I would think it doesn't discuss appointing a rabbi. Assumption is the rabbi has the best credentials, but um, would have all these halachas would apply to a rabbi also, as we're going to see. So, um, but uh, um, in Kavanaugh's case also, clearly I would guess when you're having someone who's going to be a member of the Supreme Court, um, he would be viewed as a shleach tzibur, quote-unquote. He's representing the tzibur um, and representing everyone. So, so in that case also, it says, uh, I would assume this would apply. So it does like this. The Shulchan Aruch discusses in, starts off in Simon Nun Gimel. Sivdal says, Shliach Tzibur Tzorch Shia Hagon. He has to be a proper person and discusses Vezu Hagon. She Rekon Meaveris. He has to be free of sin. So very clearly, Shliach Tzibur should not. It doesn't mean obviously everyone has sin. And Gemara discusses no such thing as free of sin. But someone who is a, is a Yerushalayim is, we, we know if he, and I was going to discuss if he had sin, maybe the Tshuva. Yatzal of Shem Ra. Um, he says if he gets a bad name, the Shlech Tzibur has a bad name, 
Afilu Bialdusa, even in his youth, meaning 30 years ago, in high school he did something, and, uh, and there's rumors about what he did in high school 30 years ago. Um, even that's a problem, says the Shofanar. Okay, so it's not just about me. Um, so, so that's a very important halach. He says it very clearly. Now on the bottom, the Mishnah Bura discusses, see if I missed anything. So then he discusses other things, says she onav. Um, so first he says very clearly, even in his youth, the Shokhanah says, Shiyanav, he should be humble, Brutzalam, and he has to be accepted. The people have to want him. That means if people don't like him, if everyone doesn't like this guy, even for whatever reason, you know, he has a big nose, or, or he, he has a high voice, squeaky voice, whatever the case, that's also a reason not to appoint him. says he has to be accepted. The Yeshnul Ima, the Kalar, he has to have a sweet voice, um, etc. Okay, so the, so the Mishnah Bura on the bottom discusses, um, there's a guy on Shalom Yatsa Lav Shemra. Mishbura says, "Dafkalim limanosa lechatchila." Says the Mishbura, "This is only told about appointing him originally, meaning once he's already has a job, he's chazan. So now removing him, this is a very important difference that Allah seems to make. When someone is already in that position, say Rabbi is already in that position of his accusations of his past life or even current um, allegations, or if the person you're hiring and now you're going through the interview process, so it's very different level um, of." of standard of what you're going to uh, accept. So he's saying, if someone has a shame ra, his bad name, again, whatever that means, um, rumors about him, so then he says, says the Mishabur, that's what the Shekhanah is talking about, you should not appoint him. If he's already in that position, now you want to remove him from that position, he says that's different. Um, since now there's nothing about him, it's only in his past life, that's not a reason to remove him. So this is very relevant to Kavanaugh. Here, when we're coming to appoint the Supreme Court Justice, so that's when it, it's uh, this, this level, the standard of not having rumors about him is important. If the person's already on the court, and now rumors uh, surface, which as we know in this Me Too uh, generation that's happening a lot, about someone about his past life, um, but right now he's already in that position, so that's a different story. He says that you have no right, if there's nothing now about him, just a past incident, um, then, then uh, he says you can't remove him, except he puts in a very important caveat. We'll call it the like pasuk. He says because she yatzalav at the shemrat. We'll call it the like pasuk. That's the Chavetz Chaim's language. He says there's a rumor that doesn't stop. Okay, there's a lot of discussion in the Mefarshim and the Paiskim what that means. But uh, some, it, it's obviously it's not applicable today. I'll tell you why. Because in those days there was no uh, WhatsApp, there was no text, there was no internet. So in for a rumor to start, that means it had to be really a good rumor. Uh, that people are going from house to house and everyone's talking about it in the mikvah and everyone's talking about it, you know, in shul. It's not just like today. Today, you know, it's so meaning so over there, the place can discuss. So there's a rumor for two days straight that doesn't stop. That must be there's something to the rumor. Today, you can put something on your WhatsApp, on your Facebook page, and 5,000 people across the world will see it and there's a rumor in five seconds. So it's very different, and I don't know how this, what today we have to redefine the Paschim, I don't think they've done that yet, in what's called a color delay Paschim, a rumor that's, that doesn't stop. Because in those days they said 36 hours, two days, 36 hours. Today, obviously, uh, it's, uh, it's very different um, with, with Facebook and all the social media. So, um, so you see, he goes on to say, he also says, by the way, the Mishmur says, um, if there's a call of Pasuk, I feel yachid, even an individual Michael of Lavir, even one person will accept the rumors. If the rumor, even if the rumor started with one person, he says, will accept it if it doesn't stop, if the rumor doesn't stop. And he continues. Um, and he goes on to say, I feel him as Barabbaid of Shachata, Masachuva, 
even if there's if there's Adam come about this guy and says that he sinned, but if he did and you should not remove him, according to everyone. So there's a very important aspect where the and the place can discuss that. I saw a Chuva recently uh, not so recent, but from the uh, Menasha Klein, who was a Pisic in Brooklyn, uh, he died, I don't know, five, three, four years ago, two years ago maybe. So he has a chuva where someone asked him about a two chuvas actually, Russia Weiss has a chuva where someone asked him about a rabbi who did something in his past life. Um, and now he's coming to be interviewed as, as a rabbi, and or mechanach, I forgot the case. And he says, um, and the question is, but we know he did tshuva. He, he's a different person than he was then. He did something many years ago. And Rasha Weiss says very clearly, if he did tshuva, there's nothing wrong. You know, everyone sins. Everyone has past indiscretions, skeletons in the closet. So just the fact that he did something years ago, now, of course, if he did tshuva, that gives you no right to remove him from his post. Okay, so he says that very clearly. Rabbi Asher Weiss has a, a lengthy tshuva discussing this, and he says, if you do tshuva, that's not a problem. And I, I think, again, it's very important. It, just, just applying that to Kavanaugh, he really didn't do tshuva because he never admitted he did it, he wouldn't admit he did anything. So, so you can't really say he did tshuva because he claimed he never did anything. So if someone is claiming he didn't do anything, also you have to know what tshuva means, as we know, because tshuva bein adam l'makam and adam is two different things. If a guy did a sin between him and God, so he did tshuva, he's done. But if he never asked forgiveness from the victim, so tshuva doesn't help in that case. Because if he never asked forgiveness from the victims, what's, what's tshuva going to work? Tshuva's not going to help you. Because you need, as we know, a sin between man and man, you have to ask forgiveness from the victim. Even Yom Kippur says, tshuva is not machaper until you get mechila. Come join us. Have lunch. It's better than yeshiva's lunch. Um, so, so, uh, so the point is, so with Kavanaugh, where he never agree, even admitted he did a sin, clearly he didn't do tshuva. He, he maybe has nothing to do tshuva for. So that's number one. Number two is, it's been Adam lechavera. So he would have to have asked forgiveness from Miss um, Blasey Ford, which, he never, which clearly he never did. That's number two. Um, what's interesting is also, this is another tshuva I saw from Ramanasha Klein. He says like this, he discusses someone, a rabbi came to him who was interviewing for a position, and this rabbi was sat in jail for mail fraud in the past. <coughs> he has a conviction and he was in jail. And his question was, does he have to reveal that to the, to the, to the, on the interview? Does he have to tell the shul that he, whoever it was, interviewing with, that he has, that he sat in jail in the past and he has a mail, he has a mail fraud conviction? Okay, it doesn't get into the details of what the case was. Um, so, but the point is, so, so Masha Klein says, you, you're not, if you did shuv on it, and you're in a different place in your life now, you do not have to reveal that to them. Um, again, similar concept. You did shuva. If they ask you, did you ever sit in jail? Which today you should do that in every interview with a rabbi. Um, it should be probably something you should do. <laughs> so if they ask you, he says, of course you have to reveal it. They said, do you have any felonies? So of course you have to reveal it. But if they don't ask you, he says, and you did shuva and you're in a totally different place, that was your past life, he says, you don't have to reveal that in the interview process. Which is a little chiddush, but um, because I, I would think if it comes out, again, this was written probably 20, 30 years ago, today, yeah, where everything's on the internet, if it would come out, it would be a big Hashem. So I think it probably, in my opinion, I can't, I'm not someone to argue, I'm not client, but probably should reveal it just because of the potential, you know, Chil Hashem, the desecration of God's name that can come out if, you know, the guy, they appoint him as a rabbi and then, you know, someone finds on the internet that 20 years ago he, he was in jail for mail fraud. So that could look bad on his resume, uh, clearly, and, and could make a Chil Hashem. So I would say, probably in today's society, this Menashe Klein was writing this again before internet and things like that, where you can find these things out. So chances of finding it out, if he doesn't have to reveal it if they didn't ask him. So it's an it's a interesting question. But again, the point is, 
what we see, what they're both saying, Rabasha Weiss and Menashe Klein, both seem to be saying is that if someone did shuva on a specific act um, of the, in their past indiscretions, it's, it shouldn't be an issue as far as appointing them at this point in time. Um, but the Mishnabura, um, on the next halach again, so as we said, there's a difference between appointing them originally and, and uh, taking them off their position. So Mishnabura seems to imply, and I'm not sure, um, he says also be al so you did something in your youth. So um, he seems to imply even if you did shuva, you shouldn't appoint him l'chatchila. Um, the Mishnah Bura seems to imply in this in this sif. So um, there's a lot more. I don't want to run out of time. But uh, the um, I just want to show you just one interesting Rambam. If you turn, to, so first of all, actually look at uh, just on the same topic. Passing discussions, what we just discussed. So it also discusses in, in Hilchas Shuva, actually. Not in Hilchas Shuva, actually, it's in Hilchas Shabbos. Sorry, number nine. It's Hilchas Shabbos, where it's discussing um, being mafresh cutting from Isser. As we know, there's, for a minor who does sins under the age of Bar Mitzvah, there's no prohibition, technically speaking. So they can have cheeseburgers, they can eat anything, technically, under the age of Bar Mitzvah. We don't allow it. It says you, um, the parent has to obviously discipline them, do something wrong, just because you can't start at the age of 12 or 13. It's not going to work, um, educationally-wise. Not a smart thing. But technically speaking, they didn't violate anything when they were minor. So the Shulchan Aruch discusses that. He says, but he says, a child who has hit his father, who has transgressed any other prohibitions when he's a child, although he isn't required to repent, when he gets older, it would still be praiseworthy for him to take on certain practices to effect a complete forgiveness. So technically speaking, you don't need to do tshuva. Something you did when you were under the age of bar bar mitzvah, or in, let's say, Kavanaugh's case, he was 16 or 17, where he te- legally he was a minor at the time. So technically speaking, he doesn't need to do tshuva on that um, because he was considered a minor by the law. So, well, Kavanaugh's case, I don't know how that worked he, in high school. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know enough about the law. But let's, uh, let's discuss under bar bar mitzvah. So technically speaking, if you do something as a katan, or Tana, you don't have to do tshuva on that action. Even though I know I did, and I, a, one of, I violated one of the 630 mitzvahs when I was under the age of bar mitzvah, I don't have to do tshuva on that. But, says the Shulchan Aruch, it's still a good idea to, to, uh, to, to do something, to take on something, do some form of repentance for that act, and get a forgiveness if you harm someone, whatever the case. Let's say you hit your father in that, in that situation. So um, here too, even though, again, like we're still, let's applying it to Kavanaugh, where if you want to say technically he was in high school, wasn't a violation of the law. If he was a minor, I don't know. Again, I don't know if he was or he wasn't. Um, so does he have to do tshuva? So technically, according to Allah, he wouldn't be. He wouldn't have to do tshuva, but he still should do something, um, take on certain practices to amend for what he did. Um, and then again, I quote the Shulchan in Chashimish, but also says that people, um, once they've done tshuva and they pay for the crime in number ten, however, once they've accepted upon themselves to repent, they're vowed witnesses immediately. Okay. Um, and they're, as far as Halkas Edus, they're accepted um, irrelevant of their past indiscretions once they did tshuva. So again, you see this concept that tshuva helps. And what I want to point out is one other, I heard a chat from someone, number eight, um, the, which is the Rambam discussing what is the definition of a Rav or Talmud Chacham, or who you should appoint. So he says like this, he says, even as the wise man is recognized by his wisdom, so he says, it's not always about wisdom, because that was a big thing. As we know, Kavanaugh was uh, someone who had major knowledge, he was uh, 15 years on the court, on the superior court, and, and I mean, he was one of the, probably one of the, uh, you know, as far as knowledge goes, they say one of the best jurists in the country. But the Ram says that's not enough 
that's not enough to give you an appointment. He says, even as the wise man is recognized by his wisdom and ideas, whereby he is distinguished from the rest of the public, so it is necessary for him to be distinguished in his conduct, eating, drinking, sexual relations, elimination, how he goes to the bathroom, even speech, random, random, what the word there is, dress, temperament in words, and his business relations. All these deeds should, should be aesthetic and exceedingly cultured. So the Rambam, um, someone told me a chat from Mayor Stern, in this Rambam. The Rambam is not saying that uh, you could be, a, you know, it's the Pashup Shah and the Rambam, everyone reads the Rambam, this Rambam number eight, is you could be a Talmud uh, Chacham, I'm a scholar, but if I don't have these other, these other things, so then, uh, you know, if I'm not good, I have other actions or in this questions, I have other issues in my life, so then don't appoint them, he's not, uh, don't appoint them as a, for a position. So um, someone told me, this, no, the Rambam's not saying that. The Rambam's saying something much deeper. He's saying if you, Knowledge alone is not what makes you tamukah. If you have any of these other problems, it means, and you're eating, drinking, and your sexual conduct, whatever it may be, you have other issues, um, then you're not a tamukacham. Your your is irrelevant. That you know you need in order to be a tamukacham, it's not enough to just have the guy person knows shas and he knows amazing Allah. He's just an amazing person in, in his knowledge. That's not sufficient. In order to be classified as tamukacham, says the Rambam, you also need to fit in all the other aspects. So all these other things, the way you eat, the way you sleep, the way you deal with people, um, and all these other things are also part of the definition of being Tamukah. And if you don't have that, then you shouldn't be appointed as a Rav. So no, is it meaning, why are you appointing a person as a Rav if he doesn't fit all this criteria? So it's a very important thing um, when anyone here is on the board looking for rabbis in the future on boards. So this is a very important aspect, very important Ramam to remember. So we're going to finish off. Um, just to end off here, and there's others, a lot more on the topic, which I didn't get to. But as far as uh, um, the last thing, just as far as we mentioned, we'll go back to being drunk, because part of the question was, well, are, am I exempt for something I did when, is I, when I was inebriated? Okay, because that was part of the defense, in a certain sense. You know, it was high school, he was drunk. You know, what do you want from the guy? Everyone gets drunk in high school. So he says like this, so the Gemara Nehrevin says very clearly, um, number 11, with regard to one who's intoxicated, his acquisition is binding acquisition. That is, he cannot retract the transaction when he is sober. Similarly, his sale is a binding sale. Moreover, if he committed a transgression, any Avera, so the, so the Allah is saying very clearly, this, this is the Paschal and the but the, the Gemara is saying, just because you inebriated when you did something, first of all, does not get you off the hook. We have a concept, Allah, which a person is, is always liable for their actions. It's irrelevant. You can't claim, I was sleepwalking, I was drunk, there's no such thing. The halacha says very clearly, a person, an adult person who's sane, is always liable for his actions. The fact that you were drunk does not get you off the hook. It says if you sold something while you were inebriated, it's a sale, still a valid sale. Moreover, says the Gemara, if he committed a transgression for which he is liable to receive the death penalty, he is executed. Even if he did it while he was drunk, he committed that murder. And if the offense is punishable by lashes, he is flogged. The principle is that he is like a sober person in all matters, except that he is exempt from prayer. The only thing being drunk gets you out of is davening. Um, you're not allowed to daven. There's Allah, you're not allowed to pray when you're drunk. For a certain level of intoxication, of inebriation, you're not allowed to daven. But besides for that, everything else, um, is con- you're considered a full, with your full faculty. So using inebriation as a, as a way to get out, as a defense, to get off something, uh, a past indiscretion is not true according to Allah. We'll stop here, there's a lot more on the topic, but not enough time. Um, just, so just to finish off, by the way, with Kavanaugh, I think the process that was done, um, I think was correct. I Meaning again, we mentioned before that she, Ms. Blasey Ford, originally did not publicize it. She went privately to Diane Feinstein. I think that was the right thing to do according to Allah because 
she had no right to publicize it because it was just an unsubstantiated rumor, even though she might have thought it was fact. Um, and then what, what happened with the process was they, then the FBI went and investigated those rumors. That's what we're saying, according to the Chafetz Chaim, should have been done. Go ahead and investigate the rumors. They didn't find anything, assuming, and again, I don't know the details, but assuming the FBI had access to everything they should have had, and they, they did a thorough investigation, so they did the right thing. They didn't find rumors, and therefore they have no right to not to appoint a disposition. <coughs> The Mishabura seems to be a little more macro, maybe, but uh, speak to your local that's so, so have a good day. So, with respect to Diane Feinstein, yes. what are the consequences? That's a very good question. I mean, uh, she's Jewish, actually, so she, she, we should well, flog her. I think it needs a public it. flogging. She should get a public flogging. No, I mean, but Al-Khab, I mean, Yeah, that's what I'm saying. She, she's Jewish. She should have kept Al-Khab. There's no Israel. But she didn't, and therefore... Right. Uh, yeah, not, I mean, today we don't... There's nothing we can do there today. Just to vote. You have been listening to the MP3 Project from the Jewish Ethics Institute. For a complete selection of our lectures please visit our website at j-ethics.org. Shalom.